Hello and welcome to today's podcast episode. Today I'm really pleased to have Vimala Sara here uh, on her uh, morning in Vancouver. So I'll call you Vimala Sara uh, and you also write under the name Valerie Mason John as you did with Paramabandhu Groves in the book that we're talking about today which is Eight Step Recovery using the Buddha's teaching to overcome addiction. So thank you for joining us. Thank you. <laughs> it's um, one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you was because uh, we, in the last while, uh, your book has been doing really, really well. Uh, you published it, uh, well, almost eight, nine years ago. It won the USA Book Best Book Award in 2014. This is our third reprint. It's a second edition. So it's been going for a while. It's obviously a very, very helpful and fruitful book. And uh, we really saw the sales grow quite a lot at the end of last year. So I've been thinking it might have something to do with um, the fact that lockdowns and the COVID period has uh, uh, has had quite a lot of effect in terms of uh, working with addictions and struggling with mental health, as we know in, in a lot of other ways. So um, I'm, I'm wondering, uh, I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about what you've been noticing about uh, addictions at the moment, given the world that we're in. Well, um, there's always been um, addictive or adaptive behaviours. I mean. I, I always say that the the Buddhist teachings um, is the oldest recovery program that we know of to date, or the old, oldest um, psychotherapy program that we know to date. So, and and we know that the the Buddha's first discourse actually says that there is addiction to hedonism, which is lowly coarse and unprofitable, and there's addiction to self-mortification, which is lowly coarse and unprofitable. So there, there has always been addictive behaviours. And, and it's uh, quite interesting, actually, because we the, over the past couple of years, we've had this pandemic and we've had many, many uh, people die from from covid and in places like vancouver and also in places like san francisco we had more death fentanyl deaths from addiction than we did actually have from covid yeah so that's that's how um that that is is it a pandemic or an endemic and where where i live everybody will know somebody who's either died of a fentanyl overdose or has got brain damage from from uh, a drug overdose or died from from alcoholism I, I have i have at least three friends who have lost a child to addiction or and one of them who's whose um child has uh, extreme brain damage so um what what do I notice about addiction? I think that definitely during the pandemic that addictive behaviors definitely went up. I know a friend of mine who lived in the UK and was walking one day in the in the country and bumped into a friend of theirs who had a, a vineyard and, and actually said, you know, what's business like for you? And the person who ran the vineyard said, well, actually, 
business has been really good. You know, restaurants haven't been asking for the wine, but actually the sales of alcohol in um, off licenses have just gone through the roof. And also as well, if we think of something like disordered eating, uh, overeating, compulsive eating, everything went online. You could actually get it at the the tip of your, your fingers. You didn't even have to go out for it. And especially during lockdown, what what did one have access to? I mean, we know that if you go on retreat, you know, when, when we go on retreat and it's a silent retreat, more food is eaten because there's no other distraction. So, um, yeah, um, addictive behaviours is, is something that we are always going to have to live with. And, and really, I think what needs to change is, is how different governments deal with uh, addictive behaviours, that uh, it's not um, so many um, governments are quite punitive. Yeah. And we, we really do need to change this because it's an illness. Yeah, it is, it is, an, it is an illness. It's uh, definitely a, a mental health, a mental health issue. Yeah. Yeah. Just anecdotally, um, I spent a bit of time with my family in South Africa at the end of last year. I finally got to go over and um, just speaking to my nephews and nieces and seeing the levels of, uh, addiction, suicide attempts, uh, isolation, sort of this combination of isolation and um, availability. Uh, it seems pretty, uh, well, toxic, very difficult for people to manage uh, a lot of suffering in it. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's all around us. Um, you know, um, and, and what what causes addiction? I mean, you know, it's said, I mean, I think we, we all experience some form of trauma, but not everybody who has trauma has addictions, but everybody who has a, addiction has experienced some kind of, of, of trauma. Um, and then, so if we think of the impact of, of war, you know, there's war in every corner of, of, of the world. And uh, what do people what do people turn to? You know, what what do I'm I'm pretty sure that the the soldiers who go to war have issues with addiction. You know, I just think you know because war is so much fueled by um, ignorance, um, delusion, and hatred. In fact, Martin Luther King uh, calls the three poisons uh, militarism poverty and racism yeah and you can you can uh, you can really really see that and and what what drives you know what drives that yeah yeah i mean your book in a way uh, attends to the difficulty of addiction and the possibility of recover of recovery primarily on the basis of individuals uh, i mean you speak to somebody who's reading it because they're concerned about their own behaviour or the suffering that it's causing themselves or others. Um, maybe we can come back a little bit later to the relationship between sort of individual level uh, suffering and recovery and uh, and the collective, what needs to be done collectively to support it. Maybe we can start with 
what addiction is, I was interested to read, um, you've got that great introduction or forward preface from Gabo Mate. Mm-hmm. Is that how you say his name? Uh, gosh, Gabo would crucify me if I, if I get <laughs> his name. He's a, he's, I, I, I classify Gabo as one of my teachers. He's also a good friend and a, a colleague. But yeah, Gabo, Gabo Mate, yeah. And uh, he, he says addiction happens when an activity is used as a means to escape from the distress of experiencing oneself, which struck me as a very, very helpful way of thinking about it. addiction as an activity rather than addiction concentrating on what uh, substance or activity it is that's addictive. And and you said uh, in you and Paramabandhu in the book say like what we mean by addiction is any mental or bodily habit that has a compulsive quality to it and causes us to suffer. A very wide-ranging and inclusive understanding of addiction, isn't it? I mean, I could recognize my own addictions in it. I don't think of myself as um, that addictive, but certainly I could find that kind of compulsive suffering-causing habits. Sure. I I think it's important to have that breadth in in, in the definition because uh, addictive behaviors or adaptive behaviors um it's it's on a continuum it's on it's on it's on a spectrum i mean we've all got mental health issues somewhere somewhere along that spectrum and i suppose what we're we're looking at uh the i suppose the the more extreme end where there is that compulsiveness is also that that lack of control you know that 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 loss loss of control yeah and because there are many people who um, have compulsions and they're able to to live kind of well and not not for it to to get out of control whereas there are um, many people where addictive behaviors just take over their lives yeah um, so and and I think it really is important, actually, for people to identify um, with addictive behaviours because it's so easy to see ourselves as separate. <laughs> okay, that's not me. Um, that is uh, somebody else. And actually, I think that if we were able to see that we're not we're not s- separate. Uh, I think we would have a lot more, a lot more compassion. So, and then, you know, also I just really want to say that some of the components of addiction is also craving. And, you know, this is (laughs) in the Buddhist teaching is this, this, this whole craving. And, and I think it's also to think about uh, not just the definition of addiction, but, what are addictive behaviors? Because often, I mean, if if, if we think of the uh, the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistic Manual, it it will only um, have alcohol. Um, it's just registered gambling, and yet there are so many other behaviors which are a matter of life and death. In fact. 
writing the book with Paramabandu, I would say was such a, it was such a beautiful um, piece of work to do together. I think it was, it was very egoless. And we had a, we had an agreement that everything that went in the book, we had to agree with. And we did, we did really write it together. And there was only one thing that we didn't initially agree on. And that was uh, me saying that stinking thinking was an addiction. And I remember uh, Paramavanda saying to me, you know, I can't, you know, you know, my colleagues will think I'm <laughs> crazy. You know, I mean, Paramavanda, I mean, he was a, a, a senior uh practitioner in the National Health Service, you know, running an addiction unit and out, you know, alcohol unit, etc. It's like, I can't say that. And I remember looking at um uh Paramavanda, I think we, we must have it must have been online because we actually worked online with this book. And I remember saying to him, Paramavanda, you know, stinking thinking is the cause of road rage. It's 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 the cause of of violence. It's a cause of sexual abuse. It's 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 a cause of people taking their lives. And he just relaxed and said, okay. And of course his colleagues didn't think he was crazy. So you know again just how that is a substance that actually you know people um people often enjoy dwelling in those negative mental states that they can be so seductive yeah and that's the substance we have to remember that you know that the mind is a is, is a sense store and it's a substance to the mind you know, so again, you know, we can think of what is addiction, the components of it is, is that, you know, it has cravings, it has the, the lack of control, it has compulsions and also the consequences. Those are the four traditional um, four C's of um, addictive behaviour. And I think if you've got one of those, then yes, you need to be really looking at what's actually happening. And then let's look at what 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 are some of these behaviors because sometimes people think oh well you know i you know i i i have compulsive eating but that that that's not it or it may be love or it codependency and yet there are so many different behaviors which come under that banner of adaptive behaviors i think that's why i I prefer the word adaptive behaviours rather than addiction because what, what what we're actually looking at is they are adaptive behaviours. I mean, these are these are behaviours to try and help people to soothe the pain. Yeah, the, the, in in a way, I I was uh, co-leading a day long with Kevin Griffin, who was the one who actually introduced. Buddhist recovery into the rooms of 12 steps and his one of his book is one breath at a time which is a which is a, a, a great book and um Kevin and I were uh were saying yesterday that actually people who have addictions or adaptive behaviors know compassion because they're trying to be compassionate to themselves yet the behavior that they're doing is limited you know, we, you know, if we talk about, you know, we talk about false refuges and, you know, whatever, actually I'd see that there, these refuges are limited and actually how can we find refuges or behaviours which are far more expansive, which is going to allow, allow us to, to grow. 
So before we go any further, maybe just to say Paramabandu would have wanted to be here. He's your co-author, um, but he's up a Spanish mountain ordaining somebody at the moment, so he couldn't make it. Um, what is stinking thinking for listeners who haven't yet read the book, who haven't heard you talking about stinking thinking? Well, um, in in Buddhist terms, we call it um, papancha. I would say stinking thinking is the proliferation of thought. It's that it's 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 when the mind becomes completely flooded it's it's again i i really like those of you who are are buddhists who are perhaps listening if we think of the the prince before the prince became woke the prince was assailed by mara but didn't get caught up in that stinking thinking was able to see through Mara and not identify with Mara, didn't see themselves completely separate from Mara, but didn't identify with Mara. Otherwise, the prince would never have, have woken up to, to, to the truth. So for me, um, that stinking thinking is, it's, it's, it, it can be that self-judgment when we're just telling ourselves we're no good, we're a piece of crap, blah, blah, blah. Or it can be that stinking thinking about somebody else. And 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 it's it's smelly because a lot of these thoughts that we have are so old, <laughs> you know, so repetitive. They they've they've been cycling and recycling around in our heart minds for for years. Yeah. And uh and they've they've kept us stuck. They've they've kept us miserable and why do we go to that we 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 go to it because it's moving away from vedana from hedonic tone in 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 the body i know that for myself you know once i i really know now that if a thought arises um that isn't helpful, that isn't wholesome, that, oh, I'm experiencing some vulnerability and then that lets it go. Rather than like this unwholesome thought arises, I begin to identify with it and I completely spiral. Um, Yeah, spiral out of the body. Yeah. Yeah. And sort of get caught up in believing that the thought is really some truth. Exactly. I mean, one of the things that I did want to say, just coming back to you saying that how the the cells have really done well over the past couple of years, and those cells will be in the US. Yeah. And I think for me, one of the disappointing things um, with the book is is that our community, Tree Ratna, have not taken the book on. Yeah, I, you know, um, and I know actually, I did actually receive some hate mail when this book first came out and from um, some order members, um, 12 step people, you couldn't bring, you know, it was that that time, you know, we're thinking 10 years ago, how can you bring a book out? How can you, you know, it's, it's just 12 steps. <laughs> and yet what's what's happened in the in the US that there there are so many different variations of, of recovery. I think that's what really happened that online what happened was is that all these different um 
recovery groups came about, uh, not just 12 step, but different variations of Buddhist recovery, Christian recovery, and uh, definitely, um, I mean, the US has always uh, been open to talking about recovery. I remember 20, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, going to San Francisco and half the people I was around was in a 12-step group. And yet, you know, back in England, forget it, we were in our, we were in our um, partying groups, you know. So I know that 12 Steps is, is a lot more popular in England. But this is, I think, is a really important book. And I think if, you know, people are listening from centres, it's, it's, it's time that you took the book on. You know, it, it really is time. And and Ipswich uh, have really led on that, that, you know, Ipswich have had a successful um, eight-step recovery um, meeting for, for years. And I know Manchester has one, but it, it's it's really time for um, centres to take it on and see it's 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 not our book. It's not mine and Paramabandha's book. This, this book comes out of the the Buddhist teachings and we really put a put a practice to, together to help people recover. I mean reading reading the book now I was um, really struck by how um, how widespread the Dharma is in the book. You know, I think we've we've gotten quite used to sort of secularized versions of Buddhism being applied to mental health issues or or other concerns. Um, but really, this book is is it goes a lot beyond mindfulness as an approach. There's the ethics that's in there. There's the like working with the notions of self. There are the lakshanas. There's uh, kindness and not being willful. I mean, there's a very very wide range of uh, dharmic input in there. I, one of the things that really struck me um, was repeatedly in different ways in the book you say to recover we need a vision that's bigger than our addiction um, and that to me seems to be at the one of the hearts of dharma practice is to have a vision that's bigger than the limitations of the mind filled with greed hatred and delusion yeah thanks for saying that because i must also remember that i've had some very senior order members write to write to me and thank me for the book and thank me for the breadth of, of, of the book. Yeah. So, yeah, we, um, yeah. What, 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 what can I, what can I say? I think, I think that's the reason why the book has been a success. What is the relationship between what you do in eight step recovery and 12 step recovery programs that might be better known for listeners who may be more aware of, have heard more about the 12-step recovery processes? Well, it's interesting that we, um, in an eight-step meeting, we do um, have a section how it works. And in there, we talk about um, Bill W., who actually acknowledges the Noble Eightfold Path and says it could actually be used instead of the 12 steps. And I think um, that's kind of quite amazing because that's in the 40s and he was talking about Buddhism and seeing um, the the impact of what the the Noble Eightfold Path can do in terms of, of recovery. 
I think the the relationship to eight steps and twelve steps it's it's part of the recovery resources which is out there in 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 the world. I mean, I can remember when we all went um, crazy. Oh, there are different types of learners. You know, there's a kinesthetic learner. There's the emotional learner. There's this this learner and. And and so in in a way, what happened once upon a time, it was only twelve steps or the asylum, yeah. And uh, for for many people, that just didn't work, you know. And I would say the relationship is it's not about reinventing the wheel because there are many things in twelve steps which works. I mean, I think what's really critical is is telling your story, you know, telling your story. And having the meeting to be able to tell the stories, and so you know, our meeting structure was very much influenced uh, by a twelve-step meeting. I would say the big difference, actually, between a twelve-step meeting and an eight-step recovery meeting. Well, one of the big differences is there's four less steps. <laughs> um, <laughs> the biggest difference is is that we do not. Um, really insist on people saying, hi, I'm Vim Lasara and I'm an addict. Yeah. Um, and not because we think that's bad, because if we think of one of the Buddhist teachings, the raft teaching, you take the raft as far as you need it. So I think actually, yeah, if you need to define as an alcoholic or an addict, that's your raft. And can you put it down when you don't need it? And so in the eight-step recovery, it's it's up to you how you choose to define yourself because at the end of the day, hopefully one will loosen that attachment to that identity. I mean, I never had that. I never had that identity that I was an addict or an alcoholic or that. I, I only had to start really defining by that when the book came out, you know. I think I think some of my friends were worried, oh, my God, are they going to out then, you know. And I still I still don't identify as 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 an addict or an alcoholic. I, 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 I don't drink alcohol. Um, I don't take drugs. I used to, you know, those, those things are... Uh, not so much alcohol. I, w- I would say that alcohol was a gateway um, drug for me. It was a it was a gateway that if I drank, then I would be into the sugar. Well, surprise, surprise! Alcohol is sugar, isn't it? So if I drank, then I would be in 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 the food. And you know, I got to a point where I I was an ex- diagnosed as an extreme um, bulimic anorectic, and I you know. If, if I was going to get myself well, I knew, realized I had to let go of the, of, of the alcohol. And, um, the, that was, that was easy. The alcohol was easy. And actually, I think also letting go of my drug use was easy, although I was, you know, really out of control with that, but was able to keep, keep myself in control. The hardest thing was to, to work with the, the disordered, the disordered eating, it's a very moving story in the book that, you know, you, 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 you come very close in your descriptions in various parts of the book to your experience of what that was like for you when you were very much in the grip of that disordered 
eating. And, and also you get a very strong sense in the book of the relief um, and the positivity that comes with uh, noticing that it's possible to put something else well, the necessity to put something else that is positive uh, and and nourishing in a different way at the heart of your life, you know, put, to find positive and healthy things um, in there. I mean, as you say that, it you know, I'm just back at the, the, the Four Noble Truths because I think that that teaching um, is so... Um, it's it's so expansive for people who are struggling um, with their adaptive behaviors or who are in the hell realm of, of addiction because for many people and, and I include myself in that you you think you're the only person who's suffering and and therefore there is something wrong with you because you're suffering and and then you come across the four noble truths and actually the first truth that there is suffering which normalizes you it's like you know okay then something isn't necessarily wrong with you you know and and then you know with that second truth you know you can really begin to clearly see how you're creating extra suffering in your life you know and it, and it was really for me when when i came across those teachings in in my in my mid 20s i i remember thinking why is the third truth that there's an end of suffering? Why isn't it the fourth truth? And I really, it was so interesting. I really struggled with that for for several years. And, and I realized, actually, if it had been the fourth truth, I, I would not have believed it. If it had said, you know, if the third truth said there was a way out, I would have given up and just said, that's BS. But because it was the third truth that there was an end and that made it possible then one could really then open up to oh there there is there is way out so i really do think that um that teaching um is 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 really pivotal so in a way i think that what we see you know coming back to that question around 12 steps and eight steps and, and I, I don't want to um, compare because I don't think that's helpful and what I would say is is that really the 12 steps is um, comes out of the context of Christianity you know which is you know which is great and the eight step recovery comes out of the context of Buddhism which is also great you know and you know and maybe there'll be a recovery program that comes out of the context of islam you know so um and and again come into those different uh ways of learning and 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 thinking more people are going to be drawn to the the way of the buddhist teachings and other people are going to be drawn to the 12 step and and people are going to mix and mix and match it's got to that point where people are mixing and matching and and in a way those meetings is just one part of that recovery um program that one sets out for themselves yeah and great great that people have multiple ways of uh reading about looking at getting support in that process I mean, one of the things that I really like about the book is the you take that Buddhist insight about the mind being a particular field of activity 
very seriously. So whether or not it's literally around like believing in Buddhism, say that's not necessary, but but really working with the mind. And I like the way you you would say. Um, that the important thing is also in finding sobriety of thoughts and feelings. Um, so it's not just working in relation to whatever activity or substance uh, one is in a disordered or a painful relationship to, but that actually you're looking for sobriety in thoughts and feelings. What is <laughs> what is what is that? Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely it's a, a clear distinction for me, and and I suppose. Um, in, in, in a way, um, in the 12-step program, people would talk about dry drunks. And, um, you know, for me, there is the the abstinence, and we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that, actually, abstinence. There is the 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 abstinence or the, the harm reduction from the actual substance. But for me, that sobriety of mind, when I, when I think of, you know, when I'm teaching... The, the meta and, and it's like, may we be at peace? What does it mean to be at peace, to be free from the proliferation of thought? I think definitely that sobriety of, of mind when we're free from that proliferation, when we stop identifying with all those thoughts, when we stop identifying with, with the feelings and just trusting that these feelings will arise and cease because we 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 know don't we that if we you know if a hedonic tone arises in the body and we move away from it thought is going to arise yeah and those thoughts then are going to create emotions so you know we we we're on that uh that vicious cycle, or if we go back to the honeyball, sort of, we talk about one of the, the traditional teachings, you can really, really see that. So for me, um, sobriety of mind goes back to one of the um, Buddha's aphorisms, this is not me, this is not mine, this is not I, yeah, of actually really seeing that we are not these thoughts, we are not these feelings, yeah. So um, that for me is is sobriety of mind, and it comes and goes. You know, we 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 live in a we live in a world where there's so much stimulus. In fact, it can be really hard to have sobriety of mind. There's so much news around us. You know, there's you know on the computer in the, in 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 the cyber world. There's there's so much that can intoxicate us, and we do. We we get intoxicated. By our, by our thoughts. We get intoxicated by our emotions and we, we act out of them. Yeah. And so I was going to come back to this thing of um, abstinence because uh, once upon a time, people would always ask like, so Buddhism, is it is it abstinence or is it harm reduction? You know, this is a big thing. Is it abstinence or harm reduction? And my my view is is that actually everybody's recovery is is some kind of harm reduction. How how does one get to ab abstinence? And actually, abstinence is going to look different for for for, der- for very different uh, people. So um, in in Buddhism, we try not to have a view. It's really important for people to take uh, agency over their recovery, and and it's almost like well. If you're doing this behavior and you, you're you're wanting to come out of that hell room and it's not working, then 
perhaps you need to be doing something different. <laughs> you know, actions have consequences and, and perhaps you need to, to wake up to the truth. And what's so interesting now is that isn't people. People often don't even ask that now. The, 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 the conversation is, is it ayahuasca? You know, where, where are you <laughs> with the plant medicines? You know, is it ayahuasca? ayahuasca? Is it iboga? Is it MDMA? And, and again, I, I know people who have used plant medicine and they've stopped, um, that it, it, it's, it's actually put an end to their addictive or adaptive behaviors. And then I know people who, who, do use plant medicine and drink plant medicine every couple of weeks or once a week or once a month. And so then one has to, to ask, um, has this become an addictive or adaptive behavior? One has to really um, face the, the, the truth of that. Yeah. Yeah. And wake up to that. So, yeah. Your uh, books, the, the eight steps, the first step is the acceptance that there is suffering and a sort of reckoning with one's own suffering. And then the whole middle of the book is really about um, working with that uh, in, in all sorts of different ways, the truth of it, relationships, uh, then working with what happens in the mind, the application of kindness, uh, not identifying with it you know, all of these things that we've been speaking about. And then the last step is um, is helping others, helping others by sharing the benefits of the recovery, I suppose, or the, the benefits as much as we've gotten to in terms of our process of recovery. Um, and I was wondering, you know, what was your motivation for, for writing this book? Was that in that part of your own uh, recovery? Were you seeing other people that needed help? Actually, it's, um, you know, thanks for asking that question because um, my motivation for writing the book, I was um, teaching the four reminders and I think I'd kind of said to the group, it must have been in Mitra study, let's reflect on this precious birth. So I also reflected on this precious birth and and I got into, you know, initially the reflection was, it became quite cognitive, you know, um, why is my birth precious or why isn't it precious? Um, and I couldn't really answer answer the question, you know. It was like, oh, I still got more to do. It was all, I think all my answers then were quite ego um identified and I just let go of it and I I can remember I don't know how many weeks later I remember walking along the road and a fork uh shot across my head what you have to offer is your recovery and I can remember turning away from that thinking ah oh. <laughs> Not really interested in that. And also knowing that actually when you're turning away, it's always good to to look at that. And I, you know, I, I looked at that. And then the the synchronicity of it would, I was, um, I, Windhorse um, reached out to me and said, you know, do you have another book that you want to, to write? So it was just synchronicity. And I just thought, yeah, okay. This, this is something that I have to have to share because 
I got my recovery in the rooms of meditation along with many others who got their recovery in the rooms of meditation. I can remember there were, you know, years ago, you know, back in our 20s and our 30s, there were many of us, you know, that Friday team, you up to whatever and, you know, doing our thing. And, and there are many people um, in many schools of Buddhism who, who I've met who said, yeah, that they never spoke about it but they use the, the Dharma to get their recovery. So I really wanted to make it explicit because recovery is implicit in the Buddhist teachings, but it's not explicit. And, and, and I think um, one of the reasons why people have shied away of actually speaking up about it is because there are so many um, Dharma practitioners who say Buddhism isn't therapy. Well, if it's not therapy for you, that's fine. But for many people, Buddhism was therapy. And so what if it is was therapy? You know, it, 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 it's like, uh, again, um, I know for me, Buddhism was my therapy for many. It was my therapy. And at some point, you can see you can take it further. That, that, that's, that's the doorway. Yeah. And, you know, I think if anybody I'm looking at people say it isn't therapy, I'm like, really? <laughs> you know, so, you know, I mean, everything and anything can be therapy. And I just come back to just saying, you know, the, the Dharma is the oldest uh, therapeutic program that we know of to date. It's 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 all in there. And the monks, I mean, in, in a way, it's like so we've had this Buddhist recovery being really explicit um, over the past 15, 20 years with people like uh, Noah Levine, Josh Corder, uh, Kevin Griffin, you know, all those in, in, in the US who were really um, helping to steer the ship in that. And you go to places like Thailand or, you know, places in Asia and the monks have been using the, the Dharma to help people recover. Yeah. they've been doing it for they've been doing it for years and years and years and years yeah so um so it, it yeah so that's that's how it came about and then um when I started working on it um I was asked I was just trying to think of his name who your predecessor Priyananda yeah Priyananda um said, you know, have you thought about um, writing with Paramabandhu? And I had, I can remember um, doing, um, initially he had this mindfulness course for addiction. He was using a lot of the, um, uh, what's it, mindfulness relapse prevention. And I remember going along and, and doing a course and what I'm thinking, oh, I do this in my work, you know, this is, this is in my work in a different context around conflict. And so it was like, yeah. And, you know, I spoke to Paramabandu, who was really into it. And, and I thought it was just such a, a great mix. I think that if I'd written the book on my own, it would, it would have nowhere have been as good as what it is. And if Paramabandu had written a book on his own, it would have been nowhere as good as what it was. And I just felt it, it, it was just such a great combination. Yeah. And um, also, I like to say it was two queer people who wrote the book as well. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Two queer people and a person of colour as well. So, you know, often um, in that recovery world, it has been very much um, 
white male het dominated. Yeah. So we brought something softer into mm. the field of mm. recovery. Mm. It's so wonderful. I, thank you so much for, well, I mean, obviously the book and the, and no doubt all of the people whose lives have been touched or healed or enriched by the book. Um, and thank you for making time today. I'm aware we've we've reached your uh, your deadline. The clock has been ticking along. It's been really lovely to chat to you. Really good to speak with you. And um, I hope that there's a chance for us to work on other things together in the future. Thank you, Vimala Saro. Thank you. Wintour's Publications is part of the Tri Ratna Buddhist community. And this podcast is sponsored by Future Dharma Fund, a Buddhist fundraising charity which helps fund Dharma projects across the world, including ours. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider donating to them to help them fund current and future projects like ours. You can find out more about Wintour's publications by going to our website. <laughs>